I also want to wish you a very happy Father's Day today. Um, you know, this is uh, dads often um, think of fatherhood as a great sort of heavy weight of responsibility that weighs on your shoulders. And uh, those of you that are dads today, I want to flip that around and I want to say, yes, we do have a responsibility, but what if we stopped thinking about uh, fatherhood as a responsibility and we started thinking about it as a great privilege, uh, a great privilege to, to raise up young ones, uh, to love the Lord. And uh, so I, I want to just encourage you with that. A lot of times, dads, we, we measure our success by how big our company is or our position in our company. And, and I just want to remind you today that your kids don't care if you're the president of, the, of a company. They don't care uh, what sort of level of success you've attained in the corporate world. Uh, they don't care how much money you make. Uh, your kids don't care if people call you doctor or boss or sir. Uh, they call you dad. And uh, what, what matters most to them is that you spend time with them, that you invest in them, uh, that you love them. And uh, this, was a, this was a big reminder for me uh, one time as I was listening to a message, a sermon, that was pointed towards pastors. And uh, the pastor that was speaking to pastors said that very thing. He said, uh, I just want you to know, pastors, that you're... Your kids don't care how big your church is. Uh, they just want to spend time with you. And, and uh, if I could apply that to your context and uh, just remind you today that they don't, they don't care what position you hold or what other people call you. Uh, they just want to spend time with you and, and want you to invest in their lives. So we have a great privilege of, of raising young ones in, in this uh, to grow up to love the Lord. I also want to recognize uh, this morning, as we do both on Mother's Day and Father's Day, that there are some... Uh, there, are, there are some who, uh, for whom this is a very difficult day. Uh, it serves as a stark reminder of a struggle with infertility. And uh, if that's you today, uh, I, want to, I want you to know that uh, I'm praying for you. I want you to know that, um, and I want, to, I want you to know that I'm praying that God's comfort would be with you today. Uh, I know that it can be a difficult day, uh, as Mother's Day is as well. Uh, or some have struggled with infertility, others have miscarried. There's, it's just a lot of uh, difficult things that go along with this day as well. And so may God be just an infinite source of comfort to you. And uh, I pray that God would also answer your prayer uh, for children and that your greatest desire uh, would be answered. So this is a day of celebration, but we also want to recognize that for some, it's also a very difficult day. Uh, so happy Father's Day to you. Um, we're in a series uh, called In Christ, and we are studying through the book of Colossians. So open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be in the first 10 verses today. Uh, also want to remind you, if you use a smartphone, you can open up the Bible app and uh, check out your live section there. You'll be able to access uh, Emmaus Road. This sermon is called Taking Off the Old or Take Off the Old. Uh, so find that there. You can follow along not only with the scripture but with some sermon notes there as well. Uh, but I just want to jump right in this morning without introduction or without uh, telling you where we've been so far in the series. I just want to jump right in and uh, see what God has to say to us through his word today. Uh, so let's uh, read together Colossians, or you can follow along with me, Colossians chapter 3, uh, the first 10 verses. It says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another, since you, will have ta- since you have taken your old self off with its practices, and you have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Now, I think central to this passage and, and central to this book is this idea of what it means to be in Christ, And we've sort of touched on that so far, but I want to really try to hone it in today. And to do that, I'm going to use my whiteboard. So give me a second to, to go and get it. And uh, this is like the cartoons where they carried the bush and hid behind it. You guys remember that? Anybody? No Bugs Bunny fans, huh? You guys are killing me. Here I am. Right? Come on, church! Are you alive today? All right, no, that is the, somebody said no, and that's the truth. I'm feeling that today. Okay, good night. All right, so, so in, the, in the Old Testament, we are introduced to the, to the idea of a high priest. And I want to talk to you today about what it means to be in Christ. I think that's central to this passage to get us where we need to go. In the Old Testament, uh, the high priest represented God to the people. And he did this through offering forgiveness that was offered through sacrifices or through, through offerings, sin offerings and all these kinds of different offerings. There's a whole structure of different kinds of offerings and different kinds of sacrifices. And this was a great way for the high priest to represent God to the people. In other words, the high priest would, would say to the people uh, of, of the nation of Israel, God offers his forgiveness through this sacrifice, the love of God is made real because you're forgiven. But it was the sort of this continual forgiveness, this continual sacrifice over and over and over again. These sacrifices had to be performed in order to make atonement for the sin of the people. And so the high priest really sort of stood in the, in the place, in the middle, between God and the people as a way of saying, let me represent God to you and his love and his mercy and his grace and primarily his forgiveness, that the forgiveness of sin is real through the sacrificial system. But what's interesting is that we also get a a taste and a flavor of this in the Old Testament, that the high priest also represented the people to God. In other words, he approached God on their behalf. And the high priest was, was held to all kinds of strict rules of living. He was, it was strict in what he could wear so that he was presented as holy. So he would go once a year into the Holy of Holies. That's the inner room of the temple. And he would both represent God to the people and his love and his mercy, but he would also represent the people to God as one who stood holy, as one who was, who was pure, and as one who was approaching God on behalf of the people. Now, what we get in the New Testament, in, is particularly in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, is that Jesus is the new high priest. 
And so in order for us to really understand what being in Christ really means, we have to get a handle on this idea of the high priest. And so what we have is we have God up here. We have man up here, and there's the separation between the two. We know that from any kind of, of, of cross or bridge illustration you were given as a child, if you grew up in the church. Uh, we know that, that, that our propensity, our, given to our own way, we would sin against God, we would rebel against God, we're separated from God because of his sinfulness, our sinfulness and his holiness. There's a gap, but what fixes this gap is that Christ comes and stands in the middle. And what is often the, the primary, the primarily the message that we get over and over and over again is that Christ represents for us the hand of God reaching down to us in love and grace and mercy. Christ died for you. Forgiveness is real. All of these kinds of things. So we, we have a really good handle on this. This is the popular message that we get all the time coming at us, that Christ represents to us the love, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of God. So let's answer that by giving our lives to Christ. What we miss, though, in this, in this idea of Jesus as the high priest is that Jesus also stands in the middle and represents us to God. And that's something that we don't often get or often understand in the way that we communicate the gospel. In other words, we tend to communicate the gospel in the modern church in one direction, this way. But I believe a a fuller view and a more biblical view is that, yes, this is true. Jesus does represent for us the great love and mercy and forgiveness of God. The very hand of God taking the initiative in our lives to show us his infinite love. But it's in our response that Jesus then also represents us before the Father. So in our response, then Christ stands perfectly in the middle as the high priest, or a fancy word is, the mediator. That Jesus is the mediator between us and God and God and us. That a full view of the gospel is that the, 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 the salvation message is going both ways. And what this means then is that as we place our faith... <coughs> As we respond to this movement, the the hand of God reaching down to us and taking initiative, then we place ourselves in Christ that he might represent us before God. Now, the only time that you get a taste or flavor of this, sort of in the modern way that we communicate the gospel, is that that when God looks at you, he sees the holiness and the purity of Jesus instead of your sin. That's capturing this very idea. But what Paul wants to say to us is that you, in your life, your propensity towards sin, your propensity towards sexual immorality and lust and anger and greed and malice and slander and all of these things that he lists, your propensity toward that dies when we place ourselves in Christ so that Christ represents us to God. Does that make sense? Uh, man, this is such an encouraging word, right? Because this, this is only half of the gospel. It's in our response and in us placing our faith in Christ, placing our life in Christ, 
dying to all the sinful things that so define us, hiding ourselves in Christ, that then we are made pure through him. In other words, it's not a righteousness of our own. It's a righteousness that comes as a result of hiding ourselves in him. And that is precisely Paul's point that he wants to make. He says, set your, th- set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. You died, not a physical death, but you died to all the things that it me- You died to your sinful nature. You died to the things that so have defined you up to this point. And now, he says, your life is hidden in Christ. And if our life is hidden in the purity and the mercy and the forgiveness and the power of Christ then we are made righteous through him. And that when God looks at us, what he sees is the obedience of Jesus. So Jesus in the New Testament truly is our high priest, not only representing the loving hand of God reaching down for us with a great initiative, but also it is our hand reaching up to God where where Christ represents us before the Father. Are you with me? A little theology 101 to get us started today. That's the foundation of this passage and what Paul is talking about. And so all the things that we stand for, lust and lying and immorality and rebellion and greed and impurity, and all the things that Christ stands for, love and grace and power and mercy and kindness and generosity, Paul's message is essentially this. Since you have died to these things, then put those things to death. Right? In other words, if this reality is true, if we find ourselves in Christ, if our life is hidden in him, then we ought to to put all those things that once defined us, we ought to put them to death. Or as Paul ultimately comes to and gives us an illustration is, we we ought to take off the old, and then next week we're going to talk about all the things that it means that we ought to put on the new. Okay? So that's the theological foundation of what's talking about, of what Paul's talking about. And if we are in him, then we begin to take on more of the characteristics of Christ and we die to the things that once ruled in our lives and in our hearts. So Paul, again, says this. Since you have died, past tense, put these things to death, present tense. If this is true, and, and this is a past reality then also do the hard work and and the discipline of making it also a current reality. In other words, um, if you find yourself caught in a cycle of, of, of something of the sinful nature, in other words, if you find yourself caught in some sort of sexual sin, if you find yourself caught in in anger and malice, Paul is saying the reality is is that 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 action does not define you. You have placed your faith in Christ, so now put those things to death. You've already died to it, so so don't let it rule in your life any longer, but allow Christ to rule in your heart. That's what Paul is getting at. So, but what Paul does is, is, this is a This is a foundational truth of the gospel, by the way. If we can grab and and catch catch on to this, then then we have all kinds of potential for change. But what Paul does in this particular passage is he points out two sorts of realms 
of the sinful nature that, that seemed to be so prevalent, obviously not only in his culture, but obviously in ours as well. And what Paul, the two things that Paul wants to point out are sexual sin and harmful words. Now, before we, we tackle these sort of um, individually, uh, I, I want to jump to the end of the passage of something that Paul says. He says this, right in verse 10. Uh, he, he says, well, let's start at verse 9, because verse 10 is, is the, the finishing of, of verse 9. He says, do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you have put on your new self. And he says this about the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. In knowledge. Here's what I want to help us do today as it relates to sexual sin and, and, and words, or words, sinful words, or words of anger, is I want to help us to begin thinking correctly about these things. Because Paul says that we're being renewed in knowledge. In other words, in other words it's this. If we can think correctly about the power of the sexual realm and the power of our words, then that is the first step toward acting correctly in those realms. In other words, the culture tells us all kinds of lies about sex and about our words. And if we have the the correct knowledge, if we have Christ-centered knowledge to see those messages as lies, then that's the first step to really gaining victory in those areas. That's the first step to really beginning to act rightly if we can think correctly. Are you with me? So I'm not quite prepared to say that thinking correctly leads to right action. But it's a step in the right direction. Because uh, I know uh, that we can oftentimes think correctly about something and then still mess up. But if we can think correctly, see the lie for what it is, then we have the choice to choose obedience. We have, a, we have an alternative. But if we think, can't think correctly, then we feel like we don't have any choice because we're believing the, message, the culture's messages all the time. That makes sense? In other words, we hear the cultural message and we're not able to discern that that's not actually in line with the gospel. And so we say things like, oh, everyone is having sex before marriage nowadays. Right? And so how is that wrong or incorrect or destructive? Because we don't have proper knowledge, we're not stepping toward proper action. Okay, so are you guys ready for a tough one? Come on, church. Man, I would. It feels like it's three o'clock in the morning in this room right now. I'm gonna. If, if you guys keep acting like this, I'm gonna have everybody stand up and take a stretch break. Okay. Um, so, uh, so that's that's where we're at. All right. Let's tackle these. It is a poor sermon that gives no offense. Paul starts by by specifically naming sins in the sexual realm. He says they're put to death now. These things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Then he throws in greed and and wants to call out greed as idolatry. And then he moves on to talk about words. Uh, I'm going to state the obvious. We live in an over-sexualized culture. We live in a dramatically over-sexualized culture. Sex is a gift from God. And it is intended to be an expression of love inside the covenant and commitment of marriage. In other words, love, sex, is the expression of love and commitment 
inside the covenant of marriage. That's how God set it up. That's how God designed it. That's how God intends it to be used. The mistake that our culture has made is this. Sex is no longer an expression of love. We have made the mistake to believe that sex is equivalent to love. That they're the same thing. And since we all desire to be loved and accepted and valued, we have churned to sex and and, and sexual expressions of all different kinds to feed that need of wanting to be accepted and loved. We've, we've, We've said that sex and love are equivalent. Therefore, if I want to be loved, if I want to be accepted, if I want to be valued, then sex has to be a part of that. Regardless of covenant and regardless of commitment, we've just said it's the same thing as love. And and so what happens is sex has moved sort of as this healthy expression of love and commitment to moving sex as the central thing, right? It's moved from like an expression to the absolute central thing in our lives and in our culture. And so what has happened is sex and being sexy is now the most important thing. Think about how much time and money and everything else that that you and I or our culture together spend just trying to be sexy, trying to look good, trying to present ourselves well. And we do, that's not saying that we should just let ourselves go and not take care of our bodies that God has entrusted us with, but it is to say that, that we have believed that sex and being sexy is now the most important thing. And so we use sex then. If sex and being sexy is the most important thing, then we're going to use it to sell anything, right? And that's what we do. We, we use it to sell a variety of products or services from the cell phone, because I have sexy cell phone service. 4G is sexier than 3G. Didn't you know that? Right? So I'm sexier if I have a 4G phone than you if you have a 3G phone, because 3G is ugly and 4G is sexy. Okay, you guys laugh, but this is how, this is how we're being marketed to. So, we, we, so sex is used to sell a service, like a cell phone service, or any, any number or wide variety of products like shampoo. Right? So, so we live in sort of this way over-sexualized culture. Sex is moved from an expression of love and commitment inside the covenant of marriage to the central thing. And uh, let me tell you, we have believed the culture's message. I mean, we, have, we, have, we have bought into it hook, line, and sinker. And we've bought into it inside and outside of the church. An overwhelming percentage of Christian young couples are having sex before marriage inside a dedicated relationship. Other Christian young adults are having promiscuous relationships. In other words, they're having sex even outside of a dedicated relationship. And what I often see are, are two responses from this. Uh, as I talk with Christian young couples, I see two responses. The first one is they know they shouldn't, but they can't control their physical contact, and they, they feel guilty when they do. That's the first one, is it leads to guilt. The second response that I get is, quite simply, they don't agree that premarital sex is destructive. They see nothing problematic with their behavior, and they label it as old-fashioned. That if you believe in this, it's simply old-fashioned. Uh, you're out of touch. Uh, and, and what's happening then is, is I think that for too long we've asked the wrong question. And the question that I get all the time from, from young people is, why is sex before marriage wrong? 
And what that often, that's, a wrong, that's, that's coming at the question from the wrong angle, I think. Because what that, what that, what that does is it leads to pastors who, who beat their Bible and say, well, the Bible says. And we live in a culture that's so biblical, biblically illiterate that they don't really matter or care much what the Bible says. So you could say, the Bible says sex before marriage is wrong. And, the, and the, they'll be like, and? My experience doesn't tell me that it's wrong, right? So we, we've moved truth from these words to sort of our experience. And so, so if my experience doesn't tell me that it's wrong, then it really isn't wrong. It's the do whatever feels good sort of relative thing, and it's snuck into the church. That's reality. It also leans to a negative view of sex. If we ask the question, if, if, the, if the question is, why is premarital sex wrong? then sex is sort of framed as this terrible thing. It's horrible. It's dirty. You're bad if you do it, whether you're married or not. Like, sex is just sort of this awful thing. Uh, and, it's, and it's not. Sex is created by God. It's a gift from God. Uh, and so we really need to begin asking different kinds of questions. The, the also, also, a lot of times when that question is asked, why is premarital sex wrong, um, the question that is asked is, where's the verse in the Bible that says it? And we want proof text. That's, a, that's called proof texting. Anytime you, you're like, anytime you say, you're like, well, where's the verse that says that? That's called proof texting. We're looking for like the one, we're like trying to mine out like the one verse, you know? And so like when in old school Nazarene churches, uh, you weren't allowed to dance. And so like teens would like proof text and they'd be like, David, dance before God. So there you go, mom and dad. You know, and so like the proof texting, that's what we want to do. OK, and the, the closest you can get with proof texting that premarital sex is wrong is Hebrews, where it says the marriage bed is to be kept pure. The problem is, is that that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways, like another way to keep the marriage bed pure would be to not have adultery, you know? And so there really isn't a verse that explicit, there's no proof text in the Bible that says you shouldn't have sex before you're married. So that becomes an issue because young adults will look around and they won't find the proof text and they'll say, there you have it. What is the right question then? Are we doing all right, by the way? This is a tough subject, but here's the right question. Why is sex before marriage destructive? In other words, a positive view of sexuality is that God has given us this great gift called sexual expression. He created it. He's given it to us. And in the proper context, it's this beautiful, powerful, profound expression of love and commitment inside the covenant of marriage. It's a great thing. Anything outside of that, though, is robbing the beauty of the proper use of, text, uh, of sex. So if we can say, if we can again reframe the question, not why is this wrong, but why is this particular action and this belief robbing us of the full positive view of sex and sexuality that the Bible and God offers us? So that's the question that I want to ask, is why is this premarital sex destructive. Here's, here's some foundations for, for, for proper belief about sex. Again, I've said this before, but I want you to get it, okay? Sex is the sign and the seal of the covenant marriage and the covenant relationship of marriage. It's the sign and the seal. 
of the covenant that's already been made. In other words, you have to come to know her. Then you have to come to love her. Then you have to become committed to her. And then this love and commitment is then sealed and expressed through the most intimate act on on the earth called sex. Okay? It's an expression of all of these things that have gone before. If you get these things out of order, then then you start wreaking havoc in your relationship and in in your own spirituality. Sex is the greatest level of intimacy you can have with anyone, and it involves all of you. In other words, it isn't just a physical act. It's an emotional act. It's a physical act. It's a spiritual act. It involves all of you. And it's so powerful and it's so profound that it has to be within this particular context to be healthy. Take it out of that context and because of its power, because it's so profound, it becomes destructive. And so outside of the covenant of marriage, it becomes destructive because we're asking sex to be less than it is capable of being. Outside of the covenant of marriage, we're asking sex to be less than it actually is. So you take that on one extreme, which is our culture of totally promiscuous sex, as many partners as you want. It doesn't matter. One night stand, that's, you know, the culture would say, oh, that's awesome. You hooked up. They would, you know, they would uh, objectify men and women. I'd, you know, I'd sleep with that, all these kinds of things. You have that side. And what that is doing is it's trying to reduce sex to a purely physical act. And it becomes destructive because sex isn't just a physical act. You're asking it to be less than it's capable of being. You're you're dishonoring the power and the profound nature of this act that involves our whole body. Which is why in this sort of like super promiscuous framework where we're asking sex to just be physical, you see all sorts of collateral damage like guilt within that person or she cries when he doesn't call the next morning. If sex really was just a physical act, she wouldn't cry. So in those moments, they, they find themselves, conf- you, you, might, you, might, you might be there. You find yourself confused as to why I'm feeling this way because sex is just physical. And that's a lie that the culture has been telling you. The biblical view of sex and the reason that that the Bible over and over and over again calls us to stay away from sexual immorality is because it's not just a physical act. It's an emotional and spiritual and physical act. It involves every part of you. And so we have to protect it and we have to guard it. Is Paul's words here. The other thing that we ask sex to do when it's outside the covenant of marriage is we're asking it to produce commitment. This is why you will hear women say this all the time. If I have sex with him, he'll stay with me. You are asking sex to produce commitment. When actually sex is only proper in the context of a commitment that's already there. And and it becomes so damaging because what he's looking for is just the physical act. What she's looking for is a commitment from him. So they come together, they have sex. He feels like he has conquered the goal of the relationship and leaves. She is heartbroken 
because she thought that if she did this with him, he would stay with her. Teens, listen closely to this, because this is all over in your schools. These lies about sex and, the sexual, and sexuality are all over. So think, as Paul says, let's be renewed in the knowledge that we might have Christ-centered knowledge of, what, of sexuality, that we might be on the road to acting properly in this area. Okay? It becomes so damaging. All of these things diminish sex. And it cannot be less than God has designed it to be. It has to be in its proper context or it becomes destructive. <coughs> now, the other thing, the, the main argument I have with, that, that I see in this is that, uh, you know, me and my girlfriend or boyfriend, we've made our own covenant. We've made our own commitment to one another. And so why do we need the state to recognize that? Why do we need a piece of paper from the state to, to verify a covenant? I hear that all the time. You know, we've made a commitment to just between the two of us. Why, why, why do we need to be married? What's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that is that the nature of a covenant is that it's always public. It's always public. You follow covenants biblically, historically, it doesn't matter. They are always done between two people inside the context of a community. In other words, if two people were entering into a covenant in the Old Testament, it would be their tribe that would that would bear witness to that covenant. Covenants are never done in isolation. Covenants are never done just between the two, that you and I were in covenant and no one else knows about it. That's never the way covenants have been done. They're always done with a community, a family, a tribe. And so we bring covenant partners up to display their covenant publicly to you. That's, I mean, it might seem simple to, to bring them up, talk to them a little bit, turn around and clap. But we do that because they're entering into covenant people and church. And, and if that, that's not done in isolation. That's always done in community. So we bring them up, we introduce them to you, and we say, these people have made a covenant to participate with us in ministry for the good of the kingdom and for the good of the community that we might work together there's, there's meaning and value in what we do here when we, when we welcome covenant partners. We don't call it membership because in membership, it would just be like they could vote on church business and we could do that deal privately. We call them covenant partners because they're entering into partnership for the cause of the gospel and we're moving forward in what we can do in our ministry together as a church. So... We are, and, and this is also in the covenant of marriage. What was one of the first lines that you hear at every, every wedding? We are gathered here today before God and these witnesses. Now, if you got married in Vegas, there might just be a couple witnesses. But it's all good. You know, there's always witnesses to the marriage. We're gathered here before God, in the sight of God, and before these witnesses. So for those of you that might say, you know, I've just got a little covenant between us. And we're having sex and it's all good because I am committed to her. Then I'm sure you won't have any problem with putting a ring on her finger and marrying her. And if you have made a private commitment to her and marriage scares you, you haven't really made a commitment to her. Because you can still bail without any accountability. Oh, come on, that's tough. But it's true. Covenants are always public. This is so prevalent in our culture. 
that I believe there are some of you here today that as your next step, uh, you want God is calling you to a renewed purity before him. And uh, you want to make a covenant between God, between us, because you're going to mark it on your covenant part, on your connection card, and between your significant other, to have a renewed purity before God, to commit to abstinence until you're married. And I believe God wants some of you to do that today. Because what Paul is saying is, you used to be this way, but you've died and are now in Christ. And so put all of these things to death. Put this, this old way of life to death. Don't allow sin to reign in your heart or in your life any longer, but live into the new life that Christ has made possible for you. That's my encouragement to you. That's Paul's encouragement to you through the word of God. Let's talk about words. Paul also specifically calls out anger and malice and slander, filthy language and lying. And uh, that could be a series called Dirty Words. And I just might do that someday. But today, uh, what we're going to do is, is I want to look at, uh, I want to look kind of generally and then I want to look at slander. You know the old saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. That is a lie. In fact, words can hurt way more than sticks and stones. In fact, there are, some of you may have broken a bone when you, you were a kid, and I don't imagine that you have any effect from that broken, broken bone, like it healed and it's just fine. But some of you, someone said something to you when you were a kid, and you still, still deal with it every single day. And you haven't healed nearly as well from that as you have from that broken bone. In fact, there are, there are phrases that have been spoken to me in my lifetime that happened years ago that I can recall the exact words of that phrase. I can recall the voice inflection that the person used. I can recall the setting, the environment. I can recall every single detail of the moment when that person spoke that, that words or phrases to me that, I, that were hurtful. So let's not believe the lie that words can't hurt us. Because they can. And in fact, they do. So words have tremendous power. And Paul says that given to our own propensity, given to our own action, we would, be, we would tend toward anger and malice and lying and filthy language and slander. But he says, let's put, you've died to, you've died and are in Christ, so let's put those things to death. You know, I wonder how many of you around the water cooler, so to speak, at work, um, find hurtful words going on towards other people. My argument, based on my, uh, my experience in, in, the, in the work world, um, before I entered the church and for five years spent, the, in my, you know, was just by myself in the office, and then for the last year I've had Justin and I. Previous to that, in a real corporate environment around a, a water cooler, I, I discovered that people love to slam on other people. That, that the, primary, the primary conversations at work are slandering one another. Do you guys find that to be true? I mean, in, in the, when I lived in the corporate world, that's just, that was, that was commonplace. Even if I was at a Christian company, I mean, in fact, it was the worst at the Christian company than anywhere I've ever been. Slander, slander, slander. Like it's fun to poke fun at someone or isolate them from the group or make fun of them, all these kinds of things. 
And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to slander. And, and probably I've, I've kind of pulled this one out from the scripture, probably because I, this is the one I struggle with the most. Uh, filthy language, I don't struggle with that. You know, I, there's never been a period in my life where I've, I've cussed on a regular basis. I mean, yes, I've said cuss words, but there, it was never a habit of mine to do that. I mean, there's certain things that I've never struggled with, but, but slander, man, it's easy to slip into that. If you have a tendency towards cynicism, chances are you have a tendency towards slander. And, and, and so um, here's slander defined. It says making false or malicious statements about someone. Making false or malicious statements about someone. I wonder how many times have you repeated something that you weren't sure was true? How many times have you, have you gone to someone and be like, hey man, did you know that? And you didn't know if that was true. You just kind of heard it. And uh, given the opportunity, since you don't really like that person very much, uh, you wanted to take that opportunity to say, hey, you know, them, they, they really struggle with this. Or, or they did that. And you didn't know if it was true or not. How many times have you said, passed something on or set, repeated something you didn't know was true? When was, when was the last time you said something dishonoring about a person at work? When was the last time you said something dishonoring about someone at work? I know that when we come home, we need to be honest about like, what's going on and any frustrations, and we need to use our, our spouse as sort of a, a vent you know, to, to be able to just kind of work through emotionally the, the difficulties or the struggles or the challenges at work. But, but in those moments when you're venting, do you maintain honor for people? Or, or do you take every opportunity while you're venting to, to slander them and speak maliciously about them? Do you speak to anyone who will listen to you about your crazy boss or that wacko neighbor or that coworker that's just totally off the handle? Like, given an open ear, would you go, is that the first place you go? Now, I got to tell you about my neighbor. They are just crazy. There was a season in my life where that was, that was difficult for us because uh, those neighbors had a dog that was Satan himself, and the dog's name was Angel. <laughs> and I hope they're not listening on podcast. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. It was difficult for us. I mean, we, we wanted to tell everybody about the neighbor's absolutely crazy dog. And I started hating the neighbors because I hated their dog. I'm just being honest. I wonder if anyone else struggles with slander. You know, as I thought about what, what do we do about this slander? What do we do about the water cooler conversations that are just, just mud flying in every direction? And, and I know that I talk about this a lot, but, but ultimately it came down to that the only... The only sort of prescription against slander is to replace it with honor. I just, I don't feel like that there's any kind of like sort of messy middle ground or neutral ground. Like, <clears throat> I don't think that if we just tried to 
stop slandering, that we do a very good job. I think it's too easy to slip into, into slandering. And so I thought, you know, the only really real prescription is to take someone that we would have a tendency towards slander, and what can we do to honor them? How can we speak positively about them? There may not be much that's honorable about them, but can we bring that out when we talk about them? I mean, the, 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 the real test of, of honor, the real test of, of how honoring we can be is can you honor someone that really isn't honorable? They really may be wacko. They really may be crazy. They really may be dysfunctional. And you're like, man, that guy puts the fun back in dysfunctional. I mean, he is off the... Did you guys catch that? I mean, he's just crazy. They might actually be that. But can we find the parts of them that are honorable and speak to those parts? And can we do that with one another, particularly inside the church? There may be someone here that you have a tendency to slander, given any any opportunity. You know, have you heard about them? Oh, no, who are they? No, they sit over there on that side, or they sit over there on that side. They're like on the the third row, like toward the middle. Not just, just facetiously, guys. Like, I'm, just, I'm just kidding, you know. I'm just giving you a hard time. Uh, so, so, like, what if we could honor one another in the church and replace slander with honor? That's the only way to do it. But you know what? Here's what I discovered. I, I, then I asked myself the question, is there room to speak honestly about our experience with someone? Because sometimes people just hurt us. Sometimes people lie to us. And slander seems like the most obvious option. And I decided that it is honoring that if we have an issue with someone, to go to that person directly and say, I don't know if this is what you intended, but here's, my, here's what my experience has been. You know, man, it just seems to me that any environment that we're in together, that you've you got to have the last word. And that you're not very open to other, pers- other people's opinions or perspectives. Do, do you, is that intentional or do you mean to come across that way? And just beginning to speak the truth in love is very honoring to someone. So I, I'm not saying that honor is sort of giving everybody like sort of a false pat on the back. But I think honor is, is, is equal to, to authenticity and honesty. Because honor builds up while slander tears down. Slander emphasizes the faults while honor emphasizes the honorable or good things in that person. Slander lies or communicates without information and honor tells the truth. Honor tells the truth. Even if the truth is difficult to hear, honor tells the truth. So, here's where Paul lands. You can't do this on your own, right? I mean, seriously, try it. Try to do all these things that we've talked about in your own power. And Paul says, in order to do this, we have to be in Christ. We have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We cannot simply do it on our own or through our own effort or by just deciding to tighten our belt, pull up our bootstraps, and just through sheer willpower, I'm going to do this better. Paul says, let's not do that. Let's just hide ourselves in Christ. Let's find ourselves in him and allow his character, his characteristics, his righteousness to, to 
fall over us as a, as a tent or as a protection that we might live in the righteousness of the one who has died for us and the one who perfectly represents us before the Father so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sinfulness, he doesn't see your mistakes, but rather he sees your righteousness that's given to you as a result of being in Christ. He sees your potential. He sees the, vic- the life of victory that you can live. He sees not who you are, but who you can be in him. Let's hide ourselves in him who has done all this on our behalf, is Paul's point. And so Paul says, this is how you used to be. This is how you used to be. But now that you are in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. So put off the old self and put on the new. It's a beautiful, encouraging message from Paul. It's past tense. You have died to yourself if you are are a Christian, have made a commitment to Christ. You have died to yourself. Your life is now hidden in him. So make sure the things that once ruled you are dead. You have died. So put these things to death. But I love this. Paul's past tense and then moves to present tense. Paul says, you have put on the new self. It's past tense. This is done. You're new in Christ. You've died. And this new self is now being renewed in the knowledge of Christ, its creator. So, first of all, the new self is created by Christ. Let's let's not mistake our righteousness as our own. But he says this new self is being renewed by Christ, who is its creator. Any victory that you experience is because of Christ in you. That he has made you new. And so Paul moves from the the past tense, you have put on the new self, to the present tense, which is now being renewed. In other words, your redemption is both a past and present reality. You have put on the new self, and your new self is being renewed. Isn't that good news? And here's practically what that means. If you mess up, keep going. If you mess up, keep going. Get right back up where you left off and continue to follow Christ. So often we mess up and we're like, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew this didn't, wouldn't work. We try some new program to quit whatever addiction traps us and then we fail. And we say, I knew it. I'll never beat this. And the message of the gospel is you are new and that new self is being renewed. Your redemption is both a past and present reality. And so don't rob yourself of victory because of guilt. Just keep going. Get back up. Put a smile on your face and follow Jesus to the best of your ability. Hide yourself in him and watch him give you power to overcome. Watch him give you power in your relationship to stay true to that renewed commitment of purity that you're going to make this morning. Watch the power of Christ enable you to to speak with honor instead of slander. Watch the power of Christ enable you to stop lying and be a person of truth and to clean up the filthy language that comes from your mouth, which, by the way, is not just cuss words. Filthy language isn't just four-letter words. Filthy language is words that tear down. Watch the power of Christ enable you to use your words to build people up and to bring him praise and to do all of these things that in the right context 
the power of words can be used for the good of his kingdom and to give him glory. So if you mess up, continue to walk in him. Thank you.